Thank you, Calvin. I wanted to begin this morning's message with somewhat of a, a more challenging question. I forgot my Bible and my sermon as it came up. Um, when was the last time that you prayed really hard for something? Like, you went after it. You, you prayed and, and you believed it was God's will. Felt like he'd maybe even led you to that prayer. And you're praying and praying for this thing to happen. Maybe a, a relationship. Maybe a, a job. Maybe for, maybe for healing and restoration of a, a family member. You're praying. You're praying. You're praying. You're believing. And it doesn't happen. And some would say the, the answer you got was no. And honestly, if you're honest with yourself and others, it was pretty hard to handle that no, that unanswered prayer, some would say. When I asked myself that question, I thought of two instances right away. One was my dad. He passed away at 65, and it's a shock, and it was, and I don't know if I've shared this with anyone in the past. We went to Illinois, and uh, I got a few moments in the, uh, the funeral parlor, and my dad was there, and it was just me and his body, and I said, I am going to pray for resurrection. So sad, and and devastated and I thought of the story we read last week of Tabitha or thought of Lazarus and I just prayed resurrection thought of another instance a dear friend Pat Rhodes some of you would remember uh, I just uh, talked with uh, Sherry if you're watching Sherry good morning um, and uh, and Pat, boy, he loved the kingdom. He loved the message of the kingdom. He loved the work of the Holy Spirit. He was so enthusiastic. He was a colonel in the Air Force. And he was actually just at the point of contemplating, of doing commission pastor, of joining the school, a second career. And then the diagnosis came of stage four lung cancer. And right away, I'm like, we are going to beat this. I'm going to go after it. I know, boy, Pat, confessionally and prayer. I remember jogging and just praying and at one point stopping my jog and just praying in faith for Pat. I know so many of our congregation prayed for him and Pat passed away. And in those moments, for me especially, it stirs a number of questions. How do I handle that sense of loss and and disappointment when when it feels like God wasn't listening sometimes? How do I keep the faith in those moments? And then, and then, in terms of prayer, especially, do I continue to pray as I was praying? How do I reconcile the, the promises of answered prayer in the scriptures with those moments when it feels unanswered? 
How do I reconcile when I've seen answered miraculous prayers in some instances and, and not the others? As I mentioned during communion, we're in this series of thin places when heaven invades earth, when the supernatural is part of the, the natural. We've been trying to follow uh, the life of Christ um, in that. So the first week was the incarnation and looked at Elijah when he has a, what some would call theophany of the experience of God, the experience of the voice of God, that thin place of his still small voice. Last week, Pastor Jedediah uh, talked about the life of Christ and seeing Peter doing the things that, that, uh, that Christ did and modeled for him and for us that we might join him in that. Actually, this morning we're going to talk about these thin places in the midst of the death of Christ, the loss of Christ. And one of the things that... Um, I hope that as a congregation we're getting, as we are looking in this Thin Place series, is this idea of partnership. That it's not just, I mean, Thin Places are cool. When we have visions of angels, when we see miraculous, I mean, cool, incredible, faith-building moments like that moment, but especially like last week, it, it, it came out very strongly in Pastor Jedediah that we're not just supposed to go, man, that was cool, awesome. But most often there is an invitation to partnership that we have a role to play in the midst of those thin places that we're not meant to be spectators as heaven invades earth. That oftentimes we're invited to join the work and cooperate with the work partner with the work of God in that moment. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. If you would turn with me to Acts chapter 12. And we're going to look at how the early church partners with the Lord in life and in death. In the midst of answered prayer and some disappointment in that way. Where Acts uh, chapter 12 is in the midst of the early church, and most of you, many of you know that the first several hundred years of the church, they faced persecution after persecution. Uh, kings and um, other faiths were persecuting them. In fact, in the midst of that, the church grew. So they're facing persecution as an early church. And right now, one of their leaders... One of the apostles, this is the first martyr of one of the 12 apostles. And now number two, apostle, Peter, good chance they're going to lose him too. So Acts chapter 12, verse 1, we will have it on the screens uh, for you as well. It was about the time that King Herod, this is not King Herod of when Jesus was born, and we talk about at Christmas, this was his grandson, and he was in power. He arrested some of those who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, one of the twelve, put to, get, to death with the sword. Again, the first uh, martyrdom of uh, Stephen was earlier, but um, this was the first of the 12 apostles that was put to death. 
Church history tells us that all of the apostles, save maybe John, would face martyrdom. When he saw that this, de- this putting James to death uh, met with approval from among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread, when many of the Jews would have been gathered in Jerusalem. After arresting Peter, he put him in prison, handing him over to, the, to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. What was going to happen after the public trial? Everybody knew what was going to happen. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church. Reminds me a little bit of Jonah. God was at work loving the Ninevites, But Jonah had some other plans. Herod at work persecuting, especially the key leaders, but the church. The church was earnestly praying to God for Peter. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter, not jostled him, not gently awoke, but that Greek word is, he struck him. Apparently Peter was in a deep sleep. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, and chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals. And Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. The angel told him. Peter followed him out of prison. But he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was just seeing a vision. He's still half asleep. All right. They passed the first and second guards and came to, the, uh, came to them from the, guard, the gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself. Wouldn't that be cool just to see your chains fall off your wrists? To see a gate that was locked and you just, it just kind of opens. What a moment, even though Peter is still half asleep. It opened for them by itself, and they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Poof. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people had hoped would happen. A beautiful moment, right? He's still uh, half asleep. He's wiping his eyes. And then the angel whom he's following is gone. What do I do? Oh, this is a thin place. I mean, probably didn't use thin place, but he's realizing God's divine intervention in this moment. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. 
Peter knocked at the outer entrance, and a servant named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening it and explained, Peter is at the door. I love, it just adds a realism, the humor. Like, can you imagine Peter? Yes, it's me. Open the door. Open the door. No, no. So he's still waiting at the door while Rhoda is this all excited, right? Concerned that he will be found out. Listen to the response of the believing church to Rhoda. You are out of your mind. They told her. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said, it must be his angel. But Peter kept on knocking. They're having this discussion while Peter is outside after this miracle. Peter motion, uh, let's see, Peter kept on knocking, and when they opened the door, they saw him. They were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand to them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James, this is a different James, not one of the twelve, but one of uh, Jesus' brothers, and the other brothers and sisters about this, he said, and then he left for another place. In the morning there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter after Herod had a thorough search made for him and did not find him. He cross-examined the guards and ordered that they be executed. That was the practice of Rome. Now, uh, it goes on to share and encourage you to read it. He has, uh, Herod has some issues with a, a few other territories. And in public, he, he makes an appearance and he um, makes a statement. Verse 21, I'm going to pick it up. On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, this is the voice of God, a God not of man, regarding Herod. Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms and died. Yuck. But the word of God continued to spread and flourish. What a story. An incredible thin place. It is a story about answered prayer. It is a story about the preservation of life, but it's so interesting that it's book-ended by death. Do you notice that? James, right? They, they lost James, and then at the end, King Herod. And, and King Herod, from a theological perspective, it makes sense. In fact, Josephus, he's a he is a historian, a Jewish historian. He wrote about the death of Herod and his life, and it says his robes were made of silver and it would sparkle in the sun. And people would go, ah, and ooh, this guy, he's a god. And then he was judged, probably judged for the arrogance and the pride, but also judged for taking the life of James, innocent. So that death, we can understand that makes sense, but, but what about James? 
Wasn't the early church earnestly praying for James? How do we reconcile that? And then what about Peter later? Peter, he would be, according to church tradition, crucified upside down. Wasn't the church earnestly praying then? And how do we reconcile that? I want to share a little bit personally this morning of how I have reconciled some of those things and some principles that I think that do come from our story, Acts 12. And the first is this. I think the early church does model for us throughout the book of, church, uh, book of Acts uh, two, what I would call two types of prayer, devotional prayer and earnest prayer. In fact, going back, you don't have to turn, I'll just read it to you. Acts 2.42 is about the early church and, and what they were devoted to. I'll just read one verse because it has four things they were devoted to as an early church. They were devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and we get to do that today through the scriptures. And to fellowship, they were uh, committed to the, the community of faith and the gathering. To the breaking of bread, that's a, a reference in Acts to communion and to the sacraments of the church. There was a, a devotion there and to prayer. There was an element that the early church was a praying church. Early Christians and through the ages have been Christians of prayer. And I say that that early prayer is reflected in this devotional sense. They knew the incredible promises that prayer is actually related to what Calvin shared, access to God. That when we pray, we get to be with him at any moment during the day. That we get to have a relationship with God, that we get to grow in intimacy with God. Jesus was the model of this kind of devotional prayer. But the church also models this, what I'm calling, earnest prayer, that that has been a part of God's people from the very beginning. In fact, there's a, uh, even though the Old Testament is written in Hebrew, there's a Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. And this Greek word that's used in Acts 12 is ektonos. And that Greek word is used in a very old story of Jonah that we just read. And you remember when Jonah finally gets to the Ninevites and proclaims as God wants him to, do you remember what happens? The king... He declares a fast. He says uh, he believes that God is going to judge them. And he says to the people, hey, we need to urgently cry out to God that he would forgive us. And it says, it says but let the people, uh, the king decri um, decrees, let the people and the animals be covered with sackcloth. 
You remember the chickens in sackcloth? I, I mean, I added that, but I'm pretty sure it happened, right? So they're in sackcloth, they're in mourning, they're crying, and listen, let everyone call urgently on God. You know what Greek word that is? Ectonos. It's the same one in Acts 12. There was this urgency. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. That word means there's a, that we are invited. It, it means an intensity in prayer. A, a constance in prayer. An urgency in prayer. That, that the early church, like the Ninevites, saw the circumstance. You could call it a circumstantial prayer. And they're like, we're going to go after this. Verse 5, but the church was earnestly, urgently, fervently praying. I think it challenges me in this way. What am I urgently praying for? What are you urgently praying for? Is there anything in your life that you are believing in prayer for God? There is a urgency. There is an immediacy. There is a, a constance in that. If I'm really honest with you, thinking back to Pat Rhodes when Pat went to be with the Lord, that affected me. And I would have to say my urgent prayer and praying reduced dramatically. It was a, it was a setback. It was a struggle. I, I have to believe that many of you have been there, right? And so what do you do in that moment? What I did is I said, I'm going to try and grow in devotional prayer. And praise the Lord, I've really grown in devotional prayer. And I'm still growing in that relationship and that intimacy and that beautiful connection. In fact, I think that is the, the heart of prayer, that uh, earnest prayer is meant to flow from devotional prayer. But I really struggled re-upping on urgent prayer. And so when I ask the question, what are you praying urgently for? If we're honest, some of us might say, not really anything. Is that fair? So just personally, how have I tried to grow in urgent prayer? We're going to get a little bit into what I call prayerology. I don't think that's a word, but maybe now it is. But the theology of prayer, how do we understand that? I think the, the Lord wants to reveal a little bit this morning about that. I would say that I'm learning to pray two aspects of prayer. In boldness and in humility. And as I, go, as I grow in those two essential qualities of prayer, that helps me to grow in earnest prayer. As I was praying and preparing, he just gave me a picture of 
a, a sword and a shield. Some of prayer is combat. Yeah, we're combating the enemy. And of course, the sword is that offensive weapon that we strike. That's the earnest or the bold prayer. But the shield is that humility. It's a defensive. We don't pray one without the other. And in fact, Jesus, he didn't allow me to stay in just that devotional prayer. Because I don't know if you've noticed in the Gospels, but when he teaches on prayer, he most always teaches about persistence, going after it. This idea, Luke 18, right after the Lord's Prayer, um, he tells this parable uh, of, of prayer, and he, he teaches, and he uses a Greek word. It's a different Greek word. It used to be translated persistence, but now the NIV um, there's an element to the Greek word that has to do with a shamelessness and an imprudence. And so they translate Jesus' message here in shameless audacity. I really like that. Jesus is saying, I want to encourage you to pray prayers with shameless audacity. Jesus, in another place, tells a parable of an unjust judge and the widow who won't get justice. Return, return, return. And we're told he tells this parable so that we will always pray and not give up. He's inviting us to this uh, shameless, audacious, imprudent prayer that that would be a vital part of our prayer life. In fact, in another place, Jesus says this, Mark eleven twenty three. Truly I tell you, if anyone says to the mountain, go throw yourself into the sea, and does not doubt in their heart, but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for you. What a promise. Yes? How do I reconcile that? Did I not have enough faith when I prayed for the resurrection of my father? Some have drawn that conclusion. Can we just stay with me a little bit, get a little bit theological for a moment? Can I ask this question of that promise I just read? Do you think when Jesus talked about prayer and throwing mountains themselves into the sea, that Jesus expected his disciples that he would, they would pray over mountains and they would literally be thrown into seas. It never happened. I think it's somewhat obvious that Jesus is using hyperbole, which is exaggeration, and he's trying to make a point. What point is he praying, making. We pray with confidence. We pray in trust. We pray in faith and boldness and shameless audacity. He's inviting us to do that, to, to press in and to fight. Right? I don't think that he meant us to go well, so that means it is a license that I can just kind of magically say, mountain, 
in. Pikes Peak, go find a sea, go in. No, he's, he's making the point, and I believe he wants us to hear that point and continue to pray with boldness. And yet, if you look at the whole counsel of Scripture, there is an element of humility that he is God and that we are not. That that is not a dictate that we get to demand of God results. That we don't get, God, you said that, so you did not answer the prayer in this way in that circumstance. In fact, again, Jesus is not only, he teaches on prayer, but he models prayer. And I think of the Garden of Gethsemane. When Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, what was his request? Would you take this cup from me? He was saying, could I avoid the cross, Father? Could you take away the suffering? Again, stay with me theologically. Do you think that Jesus knew that the Father would say no? We don't know for sure, but I'm guessing yes. Then why did he pray? I think he prayed for two reasons. To model just what prayer is. The essence is we bring our lives, our humanity to God. And we, like the Psalms, we say, God, help. God, why? God, take this away. He's modeling that for us. And the second thing is, do you remember the resolution of Jesus' prayer? He knows God is saying, no. And what does he say? Not my will. Your will. I would say Jesus was praying earnestly, yes? Like when drops of blood are coming from you, that's pretty earnest, right? He's going after it. And he's modeling, he's persisting, he's modeling what he taught. And yet, he's saying, I know, Father. In fact, I think he was praying it for us, hugely for us, that we pray with shameless audacity in faith and we entrust God's work, God's answer. We trust in God's will and ways for us. And when it doesn't go our way, we don't allow that to diminish our, our, our prayer lives. But we say, God, I trust you. In fact, Paul says this about God's will. Do not con conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. 
I think that is part of what God wants to do. As we're earnestly praying, as we're bringing these things, he's also discipling and teaching us about what his will is. And that his will was not that my father was resurrected in that moment. And how would I accept that and receive that? And would I continue to pray earnest prayer? That he, was, that he wants to disciple us to the point, just like he does with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, that we would pray with faith, we would pray in trust with that God is at work, and then we would partner with him, not question him. Yes? I mean, he does allow questions, but... Sometimes I like to imagine when I'm reading the Gospels that I'm one of the 72 and that I would have been identified as an early disciple who is particularly annoying, right? <laughs> that I could bring my gift of annoyance to my wife is saying, yes, that would have been recognized. And I would ask some annoying questions, right? Of course, I wouldn't have been so insensitive to ask Jesus at the moment of Gethsemane when he's bleeding drops of blood. I wouldn't have said, now, Jesus, you're asking, you said if we pray with faith that the mountain will be thrown into the sea. I don't think that would have gone over well in the Garden of Gethsemane with Jesus, yes? Right? But that's not what Jesus is modeling. Yes, he's saying pray in faith. Pray in boldness. God is at work. But don't forget that he is God and you are not. And we are never going to understand fully his ways and his decisions. The early church could have gone, well, that was for James. So let's pray that Peter would be comforted in jail before he gets it like James. No. They prayed earnestly, not understanding why God allowed James to be killed by the sword, but they cooperated with God and they said, we're going to pray. And some of them believed, some of them didn't believe Rhoda. And again, I believe that was discipleship of the early disciples in that way. The question is, friends, Will you pray with boldness? Will you pray earnest prayers? I want you to grow in devotional prayer. Absolutely. The heart of prayer is our connection with the Father. It's relational. But will you continue to pray for things that God places on your heart earnestly and fervently? If I had to do praying for my dad, and praying for Pat Rhodes all over again, do you know what I would change? Just one thing. God, I trust you. However you answer my prayer, I know I get to pray. I was just praying for uh, someone, the husband of another, and um, we were praying, and probably she was asking that we pray for peace, peaceful transition, because he's probably close to going to be with the Lord. But you know, I still prayed for healing and restoration. Why? Because we get to do that. And sometimes he says yes. 
You see, there's this invitation to pray in that way and trust God. Don't let that, his will diminish the, the, the earnestness in which we pray. Allow him to disciple us in earnest prayer. Hey, I felt led to tell you how I am praying for you all earnestly. Because I want to invite you to pray with me these earnest prayers. How Will God answer all the ways that I'm, uh, I'm praying? I trust him with that, right? Now you might want to get a pencil out and write this down. You don't have to. I'll just let you. But this is how I'm praying for you all, for us. And by the way, all of the church around the world. It's three R's. I'm praying for reformation, that there would be a new reformation according to the word of God. The church is compromising because they're trying to reform according to culture and not the word of God. The, the reformation, which our church is rooted in that history, Martin Luther and John Calvin, reformed according to the word of God. I'm praying for a new reformation for the church in particular. The second word is renewal. That he would bring a renewal like Psalm 23. That he would, I am so tired of reading leader after Christian leader falling and compromising the faith. And pastors are weary right now, leadership. Christians are weary. And I'm praying that we would discover that, that he wants to be our shepherd and that doesn't mean working us to the bone. That means we experience times of refreshing and renewal and deep and abiding intimacy and formation with him. Reformation, renewal, and revival, that we have some great awakenings, a history of God choosing outpouring of his, the power of his spirit. And it's pretty clear, especially the church coming out of COVID is desperate for an outpouring of the Holy Spirit, that we would see more Peters getting out of jail we would see more miraculous healings like Tabitha. That we would be partnering with him regardless of life or death or how he answers the prayer. But we're still partnering, but praying for an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Three R words, reformation, renewal, and revival. And I believe that will lead to a fourth R word, which is rooted in the kingdom of God, the restoration of all things. I'm trying to pray that on the daily for you, for this congregation, for me in my personal life, that's a good place to begin, and for the whole church. All right. I think he wants to teach us partnership. 
especially in the unexpected, that he wants us to pray bold prayers and trust him, whether it's a Peter experience or a James experience, we say that was that's up to God. We're praying in that, we're praying, but but God, I don't get, I will never get his ways and his moments and his timing, but I'm entrusting that. And so the next one I'm going to pray with a boldness, with an earnestness, and keep pressing in, keep praying in that way. And I believe that if we do that as a church, that God will start answering our prayers in abundance, not just what we ask for, but more, because God is the God of more, right? Right, Scott? That's your theme for us. God is a God of more. I was thinking of King Solomon, the, the son of David, when God appears to him. He's about to build the temple, or he's building the temple, and God appears. And this is the one instance that God is kind of like a genie. He's like, hey, Solomon, whatever you want. I'm going to give you whatever you want. He doesn't say three wishes, but almost, right? He gives, he's like, Solomon, I'm God, you're not, but I'm going to give you what you want. Do you remember what Solomon asks for? Wisdom and discernment. And God goes, you mean you could ask for anything, Solomon? You know what? Let me read God's response. He said, I'll do what you asked. I'll give you a wisdom and discerning heart so that you will never, uh, so that there will never have been anyone like you, nor will there ever be. And he filled Solomon. He wrote the wisdom literature of the Old Testament. That's pretty cool. I was reminded, by the way, of the queen. Do you know that was what she prayed for? When she first stepped on the throne. She said, would you pray for me? Would you pray for wisdom and discernment? I would say God answered that in a pretty impressive way through the queen. But then he goes, moreover, moreover, I believe that God wants to say, I'm going to do a little bit more through your life. Moreover, I will give you what you have not asked for, both wealth and honor, so that in your lifetime you will have no equal among kings. And yet, God is going to appear to Solomon a second time. And he's going to say, Solomon, do you know, that was a great start, but I'm inviting you to partner with me as I answer prayer. He says, as for you, if you walk before me faithfully with integrity of heart and uprightness as David your father did and do all I command and observe my decrees and laws, I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever. Guess what? Solomon stumbled. He did not partner with God in that way. Friends, would you pray with me?
So would you just take a, a moment again before the Lord? What is the Lord saying to you right now in this moment in Acts 12? Some of you might not have a devotional life of prayer. Some of you are not pressing into intimacy with the Lord. And it might be that he's inviting you to be devoted to spending time with the Lord. But some of you might not be, you might be there devotionally, but not praying earnestly with boldness and humility. When I shared about my unanswered prayer, I just felt a heavy heart in this congregation. That maybe unanswered prayer or when God has said no, that's diminished our prayer life. And he's wanting us to grow in praying with earnestness and urgency in faith and trusting 